Broadcasting live from the North Fulton Business Radio X studio, it's time for To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. To Your Health is brought to you by Morrow Family Medicine, an award-winning primary care practice, which brings the care back to health care. Hello, this is Dr. Jim Morrow. Thank you for tuning in to episode number 34 of To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. We are talking, believe it or not, about coronavirus today. I know everybody's tired of the pandemic. You would have to be. You'd have to have been in a coma to not be tired of the pandemic. I'm tired of it. You're tired of it. My producer, John Ray, in the studio at his home is tired of it. But, but there's so much out there that's just bad information. I hear it every day. I see it in all the social media platforms, and I just feel like it's an important thing for us to talk about. So that's what we're going to do again today. And I think it'll be interesting because some of it will be stuff that you probably have not heard, and it'll also be things that you've heard some other way, and I'm going to try to straighten that out. Um, John, you're there at the home studio. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm looking forward to more coronavirus. It's been exciting. Well, it's, it's <laughs> interesting for sure. I've told many people that I've never learned so much about one topic in such a short period of time in my life. And uh, the, the frustrating thing is that every week I'm learning that a few of the things I learned three weeks ago were wrong. And uh, a lot of people feel like that's us, us being science and medicine people. Right. That's us changing our mind. Well, mm. we're not changing our mind. We're learning. And when you learn that something you thought was true is not true, then you go with the new information. And that can look like changing your mind, but it's, it's not that. And I know people that go to the doctor's office have gone their entire lives expecting that doctor, whoever it might be, to know what's going on and to know about the disease process or the condition or whatever is happening. And this is not true with this because there's so much we still don't understand. We know vastly more than we did when it started, than we did even a month ago, but there's still a lot to be learned. For sure. So I've got a lot of information here. I want to want to get through that. I want to remind our listeners, whatever podcast application you're listening to, hit the subscribe button there so you'll be sure and be reminded when we have new episodes. We are live right now on North Fulton Business Radio X, and we're happy about that. But if you're not listening to us live, you can certainly listen to the podcast at your will. Uh, it'll be posted probably later today or first thing in the morning, and you'll be able to find it and listen to the podcast. And that's true every time we do one, which is the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. also want to tell you that you can contact me. Uh, the easiest way to do that is to email me at drjim, that's drjim, at toyourhealth.md, toyourhealth.md, or we're on Twitter at toyourhealthmd. Easiest place to listen to the podcast is toyourhealthradio.com. And that's uh, probably enough of that. So at Mara Family Medicine, we are still doing telemedicine. We're trying not to see people in the office who could have anything remotely related to this virus. We're trying not to bring it in here right now. Uh, we are doing an, an interesting thing that I wasn't sure how it was going to go, but when you come to us now, you don't come in and sit in the waiting room next to the coffer beside you. You stay in your car until we text you to tell you that we're ready to see you. You come in, you spend no time sitting anywhere, you come straight back to an exam room, 
You leave there, get your blood work done if you need it, and you're out the door. So there's no congregating. There's no uh, close sitting situation or anything. It's very, very safe. I can promise you it is safer than going to Home Depot where you are all going. I know because I have seen you all there. And Home Depot's got a lot more virus than Mara Family Medicine does. So coronavirus update. It's important to understand that this virus is more easily transmitted than the flu virus. There's a website, rt.live, that you can go to that will track, that does track in every state, the number of people that each infected person is making sick right now. Now, with measles, that number's around 12. Each person with measles gives it to about 12 people. But with this virus, it hovers around one. And the lower that number, the less the pandemic's having an impact, and the higher the number, the more of an impact it's having. And before we opened things back up here in Georgia, that number had gotten down to less than one. It was about 0 0.76, 0 0.8, something like that. So it was less than one person. So every person that had it was not infecting someone, which is great. Now that we've opened back up, that number's back up over one at 1.03 as of yesterday. So it's important to understand that opening back up's good in a lot of ways, and I'm a believer we got to get out there and conduct business and, and have a life. I, I agree with that, but you have to be careful. You have to be smart, and we're going to get to smart here in a minute. But this virus is more easily transmitted than the flu, and it's a worse disease than the flu. A, a patient asked me this morning if I felt like we had overdone it with the lockdown and so forth. And I told him, I, you know, when this started, I felt like we were overdoing it. I really felt like if we didn't do anything, at the end of this, people would just say, wow, it was a terrible flu season, wasn't it? And now the things that I've seen that this virus does to people, and we're going to talk about those things today, it's not the flu. It's much worse than the flu. I have a good friend that spent a month in the ICU at Northside Forsyth Hospital, and she is back and out of there and back working and feeling good. And that's nothing short of a miracle. That's an absolute miracle. This virus is much worse than the flu. The main thing this virus does that causes problems for people is respiratory distress. Now, this respiratory distress isn't like what happens when you get a bacterial pneumonia. When you get a bacterial pneumonia, your lung fills up with bacteria. The little air sacs are full of bacteria. They're full of pus and fluid, and you can't breathe because of that. The virus gets into your lungs, and the virus is so small, it couldn't really fill up your lung sacs. But it gets into your body, and your lung tissue starts producing more virus, so you have a lot of virus, and your immune system goes nuts, and your immune system creates a lot of fluid and debris, and that is what collects in your lungs and takes up the space where air should be. The lungs are very inflamed. They get very stiff. You get to where you can't move air in and out. And that's why people a lot of times end up on a ventilator. And about half of people who end up on a ventilator die. Half of people who end up on a ventilator don't make it out of the hospital alive. And that's very important. So people will, you'll hear people say, well, I've got a great immune system. Well, I'm glad you have a great immune system, and that'll keep you from getting a lot of things. It's probably not going to get you from getting COVID-19 because you've never been exposed to COVID-19 before, so you don't have any immunity to COVID-19. And I don't care how much immunity you have 
to the flu or to pneumococcal bacteria or to anything else, it's not going to protect you from the coronavirus. So having a good immune system is great in a lot of ways, but the people who get the sickest with this virus get sick because of their immune system. I said a minute ago, it's your immune system that creates all this fluid and debris, and if you have a really good immune system, you get a whole lot more fluid and debris. There's a thing called a cytokine storm. Cytokines are chemicals in your body that are produced in reaction to infection. They're part of your immune system, and they do an awful lot of really good things. But they create all this fluid and inflammation that in your lungs is not a good thing. And so people then end up in what's called adult respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. And if you've read anything about the virus, you've read about ARDS. So they end up with ARDS, and that makes them not be able to get oxygen into their bloodstream satisfactorily, and they sometimes end up needing a ventilator. Now, you'll hear people say from time to time that the ventilator kills you. Well, it doesn't. What happens is if you're sick enough to need that ventilator, you're likely to die already. Now, if you don't get on the ventilator, in a lot of cases, you're going to die because your oxygen level is not going to be high enough to feed your organs, your brain in particular. So you're going to pass away. But the getting on the ventilator is not what makes you die. It's the disease process being bad enough that makes you die. And the virus doesn't stop there. It doesn't just attack your lungs. It's a respiratory virus but it it attaches to a receptor that's found in your heart and in your kidneys. So you have heart failure. You have heart, basically viral heart infections that make your heart not pump as well as it should, so it can't pump well enough to get the blood from your lungs and your legs and move it around, and you end up in what's called heart failure. That's when you're short of breath and your feet swell and you can't walk across the room without stopping to take a break. Kidney failure, everybody knows what that is, and too many people have ended up on dialysis because of this virus already. So this is a serious, serious infection. Now, there are a lot of infections that will cause all those things, but this virus also causes blood clots. And I've never seen a virus cause blood clots. I've seen people get sick from having an infection, and they're so sedentary that they developed a DVT, a deep venous thrombosis, a blood clot in their leg. But this virus is causing it, not the sedentary part. The virus is causing blood clots, and not just in veins. Now, if you get a a clot in a vein, typically what can happen, and the worst-case scenario is, that it's in the vein in your leg or your pelvis most commonly, and it can move. And you've heard people talk about a blood clot to their lung, a pulmonary embolism. Well, if you have a blood clot in in the vein in your pelvis or upper leg, it can absolutely travel to your lung, and it can make its way around to your heart, and it can block off the blood flow from the lung to the heart completely. And if that happens in one fell swoop, then you're dead. You're dead before you hit the floor. So that's a terrible kind of blood clot to have. Now, what's a lot more common is people get a whole lot of little tiny blood clots that go to the lungs, and they have multiple pulmonary emboli, and they have a lot of lung problems and shortness of breath and so forth, and they're on blood thinners for a long time. And they don't die from that, but they have repercussions for the rest of their life from it in most cases. And then arterial blood clots. Arterial blood clots cause strokes. If you get a blood clot in a carotid artery in your neck or one of the arteries in your brain, you're going to have a stroke. And too many people are having strokes from coronavirus. 
There was an article of been six weeks ago now, probably, about a dancer in New York who got coronavirus and had a blood clot in his leg and the artery in his leg, his leg died and he had to amputate his leg. He's a dancer in New York and he had to have his leg amputated because of coronavirus. Probably because somebody wouldn't wear a mask, and I'll get to that. And at first, and for a very long time, we thought this virus wasn't affecting children. People were thrilled, for the most part, and we're still pretty happy about it, but thrilled that it wasn't affecting children. And we know now that's not 100% true. It is affecting some children, but for the most part, there are not a whole lot of pediatric cases. But when it does affect children, one of the things it can do is attack the blood vessels and cause a condition that's very similar to a thing called Kawasaki disease, that kids can get, we knew it was from viral infections, we've never seen it from this before, but it is in fact the same sort of thing. It's a pathological change that is a result of the exaggerated immune response to this virus. And it happens in people who have really a genetic predisposition to have that kind of thing. Also in kids, multi-inflammatory syndrome, pediatric multi-inflammatory syndrome. This is a condition where their immune system just goes crazy, and they have, of course, fever, they have rashes, their lymph nodes get swollen. A lot of them have uh, red, swollen eyes, conjunctivitis kind of thing. It clouds your thinking and has sort of a fuzzy thinking. You're going to have GI trouble, just like some adults can, with belly pain, nausea, diarrhea, that kind of thing, and some heart involvement. And this is still rare, but it's definitely happening. And it responds to therapy. It responds pretty well to IVIG, that's IV intravenous antibodies or immune globulin. And we're not sure why that works. We use it in Kawasaki, but we're not 100% sure why it works. I think basically our belief is that it overwhelms the body with a different type of immune globulin other than the coronavirus, and it blocks out the ability of the coronavirus immune globulin to cause a problem. And we also use steroids in that. So in the adults, as far as treating this, we use supportive care. We try to keep your oxygen up. We try to be sure you're not dehydrated. We try to be sure you're well-nourished. And this is on people in the hospital. And probably everybody has heard about hydroxychloroquine. And we have been around the roundabout with hydroxychloroquine. When this first came out, somebody thought that might work. They've seen antiviral activity from it before, so they tried it and they tried it in a low number of people, and some of them got better. Well, one thing we don't do in medicine is we don't assume something's going to work because one person took it and got better. I fight that fight on social media, it seems like, every day. But that's not how it works. And now it's been studied, and a report came out um, close to a week ago now with data that actually showed that hydroxychloroquine did not help and might hurt in coronavirus. And then about 72 hours later, that data was retracted because the studies weren't done in a good fashion. They weren't done in a very scientific way. So now we don't even have that data. Now, the truth is, most of the people that have used hydroxychloroquine will tell you that it just doesn't have an impact, and it can cause some heart arrhythmias and some heart issues. So it's not something that's being given to people as soon as they show up with COVID-19. And the belief is that these studies will be repeated in a more scientific fashion and that they will again show that it's not beneficial and in some cases it actually can be harmful. I want to say it's been put to bed, 
but it hasn't yet. We're going to have to wait on some more data. But there is a drug called remdesivir. Remdesivir is an antiviral drug that's been around for some time, and it's been studied. And they have found that with remdesivir, it decreases the length of time you have to be in the hospital. That's really what it does. Uh, you can't say that you take remdesivir and you're cured. It's not like penicillin for, sore, for strep throat. It's, it's just that it helps get you out of the hospital quicker. So that means your time to recovery is quicker, which is obviously a good thing. The problem with remdesivir is you have to give it IV. It works better if you give it very early, very early, 12 to 18 hours after symptoms start. Very difficult to do that with an IV drug. But hopefully, they're going to find that remdesivir does work, and then they'll be able to find some oral cogener of remdesivir that they can come out with that will work. It's another step in the path. It is not the whole trip down the road. It's just not that yet. And the supply of remdesivir is very short. The company that makes it just does it hasn't had to make a whole lot of it. They're not set up to make a whole lot of it. And so the supply is still very short. Overall, the number of cases that we see and we are seeing has started to decrease. The people in New York State, God bless them, they were really hit hard. I mean, it kind of makes sense. If you shove 500 people into a subway car, they're going to be close together and they might spread a virus. But they are seeing fewer cases, much fewer cases. And that's, that's good. But with people starting to not social distance, then we're going to see an increase again. I don't know how mad it might be, but you have to assume we're going to see an increase with what's going on. Um, my wife and I went to a family wedding this past weekend. There were probably 75 people there, maybe 80. And six of us were wearing masks. And, you know, you feel like typhoid Mary sitting there wearing a mask. But I'm not, I wasn't sick. Nobody in the six were sick. We were trying to keep them from getting sick in case we had it and didn't know it. So the thing about asymptomatic Infected patients is a very real thing. An average of 35% of people who don't have symptoms have this disease. That might be because they'll never have symptoms, and it might be because they don't have symptoms yet. But neither, neither, either way, they are not sick yet, and they've got the virus, so they can easily spread that virus. And it's very easy to do that. Oddly enough, some people who have the virus, even with symptoms, don't really spread it to many people, not much at all. And then some people are what is referred to as a super spreader. There was an incidence in March. On March the 10th in Washington State, there was a choir practice. 61 people went to choir practice. One person had what they thought was a cold. Within two weeks, 53 people from that choir practice had coronavirus, and two people died. And I'm going to let that sit there a second because that's huge. That is how this is not the flu. That doesn't happen with influenza. It's a big deal. So another thing that's come out, we didn't see this causing a lot of problems with pregnant women, but now we are starting to see some second trimester miscarriages being linked to this infection. And that brings me to masks. And I've talked about masks before on this podcast, and I'm probably going to talk about them again on another day. But if you're in public, for the love of God, wear a mask. If for nothing else other than to show people that you're aware of the situation and you care about it. 
But the reason really is because there is a chance you could be infected. And if you are, there is a chance you could spread the virus. There's a decent chance you're not infected, of course, more than two-thirds. And there's a reasonable chance that if you are, you're not going to spread it. But why take that chance? Can you imagine how the person feels in Washington State who had a cold and went to choir practice and two people died? I can't imagine how that person feels. I cannot imagine how that person feels because that person knows who they are. They know full well they had a cold and went to choir practice and two people died because of it. I want to take a break and tell you that Mara Family Medicine is very honored to be able to do this podcast every couple of weeks. And we are also very honored that people will trust us with their health care. We've been blessed over the 10 years. We celebrated a 10-year anniversary with Mara Family Medicine on the 1st of June. And, John, I didn't get my cake, but I assume it's still on the way. It's on the way. And See, I knew that. <laughs> and we have just been blessed by the people that would let us take care of them. We do use technology. We're thankful to have it, especially right now doing telemedicine and doing the uh, wait in your car till we text you thing, because that takes some, some technology as well. So we're very happy to be able to do that. And we do try to combine all this technology with a and, and a small-town family doctor kind of feeling. And I have particular feelings about the family doctor in my small town that I grew up in, so I'm not going to get into that. But not him, but a good family doctor in a small town. That's what we want you to think of us as. So we're starting to do testing. Seems like everybody that comes in wants the COVID-19 test. And you can do the test looking for the antibody that will tell you if you've been infected or exposed to this virus. That's all it tells you. We can't tell you for sure that if you have an antibody to this virus that you're immune to it. We make some assumptions based on history and other infections and other antibodies, but we don't know yet for sure, and we won't know until people who do have the antibody are known to be exposed to the virus. And that's a difficult study to do. You have to do that basically looking back at history. You can't do that looking forward and say, here, you have the antibody, go let this guy cough in your face. It's just not that simple. There are three antibodies that are tested for, IgA, IgM, IgG. We don't test, and I don't know anybody that does test for A or M because they're really not specific enough for this particular disease. But if you have IgG that is positive for coronavirus, you can be sure that you have been infected with or exposed to the coronavirus. And that's all you can know. It's more of a curiosity than anything else. The other two antibodies, A and M, cross-react with the coronaviruses that cause the common cold. There's 229E and OC43. These viruses were not fortunate enough to get a catchy name like COVID-19, so you have to, we have to remember these numbers, and it's not easy to do. But those are common cold viruses. When you get those, you just get a cold. But they're coronaviruses. They're coronaviruses nonetheless. But IgG is specific for SARS-CoV-2, which is a virus that causes the infection. Now, then there's also, of course, the test that you do to see if you're sick with the virus, if you're infected at this time with the virus. That's what's called a PCR test, a polymerase chain reaction test. And what it does is it 
takes the specimen, which is a swab in your nose, all the way back from your nose to your brain stem, just about, well past the pituitary gland, and it swabs the inside of your nose, and they take that and they isolate virus from it, or they try to. So they take the, the extract from the swab, and they amplify it. So they might amplify it once, twice, four times, eight times, 16 times, and and it, usually all you get is yes or no. You get a positive or negative. But what is in the background is a, a number, a CT number, a cycle time number. And that's how many times they had to amplify it to get the virus to show up. So if they only have to amplify, amplify it <laughs> eight times, then that means there's a lot of virus there and it showed up early. If they have to amplify it 40 times or 80 times, then there's not that much virus. And you'll never know this, but it's important to understand that what they're doing is they're finding out basically with each person how much viral load you have. The problem with these tests is something they're finding out about false negatives. There was a study last week that said that 38% of negatives were false negatives. And in statistics, there's this thing called a confidence interval. It tells you how confident you can be in the number you're talking about. The confidence interval is 20% on that, which means that 38% of false negatives might be as low as 18 or as high as 58%. So we need better science. People are still working on this. Nobody stopped. We're, we're getting better every day with things like this. But the testing even needs to be improved. It absolutely needs to be improved. Social media, social media drives me crazy in a hundred different ways. But with this virus, I think it's not only driving me crazy, but it's dangerous. You see so much information on social media, and most of it is unproven, and it makes it difficult to sort out what's true and what's not. And people, human beings in general, have a need to believe something. So if they see something and it sounds knowledgeable to them, they want to believe it. And when it gives them an answer, they really want to believe it. If they don't believe it, then a lot of times they'll move over to the conspiracy theory column and they start believing in all the conspiracy theories about everything that's out there. Uh, I can't believe we hadn't figured out who shot JFK on social media, but we hadn't seen that yet. But the conspiracy theorists out there want to believe that this virus was man-made. Okay, this virus has got over 30,000 base units in its DNA sequence. Okay, there are only four DNA base units, so they've got 30,000 made, uh, units made up of combinations of these four units. And you're believing that some person somewhere knew what order to put these four things in, these four building blocks, they, you want to believe that somebody knew what order to put them in 30,000 times to make this virus capable of infecting the lungs and causing the problems that it's causing. Well, that's the most far-fetched thing on the planet. This virus is not man-made. It was made by nature. It's a combination of bat DNA and viral DNA, and that's been studied and that's known to be true. Now, I'm not saying the virus wasn't released from a lab, either accidentally or on purpose. I have no information about that. I have no knowledge, but it's a possibility. 
I don't suspect it happened, but it's an absolute possibility. But it is not a man-made virus, so you don't need to worry about that. Even if you read that on Facebook, it doesn't make it so. And the last thing, really, in a, just the last couple of minutes talking to you people, I want to talk about late-stage issues because just because you have this virus and you get over it doesn't mean you're done necessarily. Some people remain positive to the test, the PCR test, for up to two months, some even a little longer. And we don't know if that means they're still contagious. There's an episode, an instance recently where someone who was negative was moved from the, the COVID-19 floor where they had been there being treated for COVID-19. They became negative. They were tested twice, 24 hours apart. That's what you do. They were negative, negative. They were moved to a non-COVID floor, semi-private room with a person who was COVID negative. And a day or two later, the person who was COVID negative in the room with the COVID patient became COVID positive. Well, that's not absolute locked in fact that the person who had been sick gave it to them, but it makes you wonder. So it's one of the things we don't know. Another thing we don't know. I've never said I don't know more often in my life as I have since this pandemic started because there is so much we don't know. And in other late stage things, people having joint pain, muscle pain, chronic thick mucus that you have to deal with, sometimes even recurring fever for a couple of months, and even some GI trouble that we really don't understand. But it's important to understand that when you hear new information that contradicts something you heard not long ago, it's not because we're changing our mind, it's because we're learning. All right, John, that's what I got on coronavirus. And you you brought it hard and fast today. Well, it's a lot of information, and you won't mm-hmm. give me but 30 minutes, so <laughs> I've got to be on the clock. Well, well, we're already over kind of 30 minutes, but I think there's some questions that we do need to answer. And uh, people are, you know, listening to this on the podcast, they're welcome to cut off at any time. Um, but you know, I think there's some questions that folks have, uh, that, uh, have written in and whatnot and, and talk to you in the office that we want to share with our broader audience. One of them being, is it safe for me to fly? That's a great question. And I'm, I'm getting asked that more now than I had been. The answer is we don't know. The answer is it's kind of like, is it safe to go to a college football game this fall? Not sure about that either. Now, flying, you know, if you're, if you're going to fly, it's important to wear a mask, even if you're not sick. The mask does not prevent you from getting sick, but about 10% of the time, but that's 10% more than nothing. So I'm going to say it's a chance that you're taking, and you have to understand going in when you get on that plane that you're taking a risk. But if you're, if you're smart and you're careful and you distance, it's important to do that. I don't think you're going to get on a plane with people shoulder to shoulder like it's always been the case. I don't think they're going to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think if you do that and you'll wear a mask and you'll use hand sanitizer and you're careful, then I think it's safe enough to fly because, like I said earlier, I think we have to get back to conducting business. If we don't, we're going to be living in the Stone Age and have bread lines, and it's going to be horrible. So I think we have to conduct business, and that's part of it, I know. So if you're in a situation where you absolutely must go somewhere on an airplane, if you're smart, I think you can safely do it. 
Another question relates to a doctor in Italy who claims that the virus has mutated and is not as virulent as it was previously. Your thoughts? Man, I got to tell you, the temptation to say the whole word, since we're not FCC controlled here, is almost more than I can stand. That is, that is BS. That is, that is just wrong. There's nothing about this virus that's any weaker than it was when it first came around. Yes, this virus and every RNA virus, that's the type of virus it is, mutates. They all change. What hasn't happened is this virus has not changed in a way that alters its pathogenicity, its ability to create infection, or its response to antibodies. So the good thing is people who have had this can sometimes donate their plasma to use as, uh, as plasma to treat ill people. And so if, you, if you've had it, that's the th- one thing you can do that can really help. And if you do that, it's still going to help because the virus is not changing that much. And it absolutely is not changing into a weaker version. There's absolutely no question about that. It's just not. And really, let me, let me interrupt one more time. Yeah, please. No, please. Um, people talk about a vaccine, and I pray we'll have a vaccine. It won't be this year. It may not be till the last half of next year, but I hope we get one. But if we get one, there's nothing that we've seen yet that indicates that this virus is going to change so that that vaccine would no longer be effective. So we have a, if we can get a vaccine, I think we have a really good chance at it being a vaccine that will give us some lasting immunity so we don't have to worry about this so much every single time we go somewhere. Mm. Sorry. No, no, that's, that's, that's great. So, uh, sensitive topic for people and that's going back to church. Now you mentioned, uh, choir practice, this, uh, incident with choir practice, you know, there are folks that, um, have gone so far as to say, this is, uh, the state preventing freedom of religion. Uh, you know, say more on just, congregating for uh religious gatherings and 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 by the way i've got a dog in this fight so uh people that know me um uh you know as as a person in in the church so talk about this from your perspective how do you feel about it well to me it's not just about church it's about gathering and right now i don't think gathering's the best idea but there are ways to do it. Just like on an airplane, you can gather in the church sanctuary, and if you'll distance, and I don't think singing is a really good idea right now. Um, so maybe instrumental music and distancing yourself, wearing masks and using hand sanitizer. I say get back in church. I, I don't see anything at all wrong with that. Now, a lot of churches are doing an outdoor thing where you sit in your car and tune your radio to, and you can hear. That's all well and good. Um, I think that's fine as well. But I don't see any problem with people who want to sitting in a sanctuary at least six feet apart, two rows apart, um, not singing, and and hearing the good word. I don't have a problem with that. It kind of depends on the, um, and this is a question, it sounds like a statement, but it kind of depends on the, the, 
the building and the size of the building and the the safeguards taken in each church, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Everything about this is very individual. So each each church, each institution, no matter what it might be that wants people to gather there, mm-hmm. um, needs to be ready to handle this. And when I was saying that, I'm thinking about the three-story tall sanctuary that you grew up. I grew up going to. Um, but it could be a, a low ceiling situation where things reverberate and move around a little bit more, particles and viruses and droplets and so forth. Uh, but again, that goes back to wearing a mask, using hand sanitizer and distancing. And I think if you do that in any situation I can imagine, I think you would be okay. Again, if you're not singing, I don't think singing is a great idea right now. Mm. Okay. Uh, that's what we've, that's what we've got. But uh, the other thing though, I've got somebody from home Depot on the line. They want to talk to you about how <laughs> the virus that you're uh, that, that, it's at their place that you claim, but yeah, I bet they did. <laughs> if they're from the coming Home Depot, they probably call me by my first name too because they know me well. I could resist that. Sorry, <laughs> that's okay. I probably will hear from them. So, people, be safe. Wear your mask. Use your hand sanitizer. Stay away from others as much as you can. Um, look in on your elderly people if you have them as best you can. Uh, They're not only ill in a lot of cases, but they're lonely. And I would encourage you to spend as much time as you can, either by FaceTime or in person with them. That's an important thing as well. That's kind of driven home at the office today. So do that too. And John, for right now, here's to your health. 